This morning, we continue in our series uh, called How Does Jesus See It? As we um, are going to focus on John 4, which uh, is, is the text known as the woman at the well. We're going to call it crossing the border this morning. I think it's a, an interesting and poignant text, especially as we follow last week talking about the new birth and Nicodemus in John 3. These are some beloved texts of Scripture, and I do indeed hope that, um, that in them you, you can meet Christ uh, just, as, just as the woman at the well does in, in, in this passage today. I invite you to hear from these words in John chapter 4. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy some food. The Samaritan woman asked, Why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. Jesus responded, If you recognize God's gift and who is saying to you, Give me some water to drink, you would be asking him and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob. Are you? He gave this well to us, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty, and I will never need to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go and get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. You are right to say I don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You've had five husbands, and the man you are now with isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. The woman said, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it is necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is here when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. The Father looks for those who worship him this way. God is spirit and it is necessary to worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks with you. Just then, Jesus' disciples arrived and were shocked that he was talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? The woman put down her water jar and went into the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? They left the city and were on their way to see Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples spoke to Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples asked each other, has someone brought him food? Jesus said to them, I am fed by doing the will of the one who sent me and by completing his work. Don't you have a saying, four more months and then it's time for harvest? 
Look, I tell you, open your eyes and notice that the fields are already ripe for the harvest. Those who harvest are receiving their pay and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that those who sow and those who harvest can celebrate together. This is a true saying, the one who sows and another harvests. I have sent you to harvest what you didn't work for. Others worked hard, and you will share in their hard work. Many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word when she testified, he told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the Savior of the world. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, for you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The story begins innocently enough. Jesus is going back from Jerusalem to Galilee. If you have a Bible and can look at a map, you would see that to go from Jerusalem north to Galilee, you would have to go through Samaria unless you took a very roundabout way. So Jesus went on his journey and stopped by the landmark of Jacob's well. It was noontime, and Jesus was hot and tired. So Jesus plops down by the well, and there is a woman there. He asks her for some water to drink, innocent enough. Except it's not innocent, not innocent at all. So the woman at the well asks, why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? We can hear the shock and discomfort in her voice. In this culture, men and women didn't socialize together. Women were second-class citizens known only through their husbands, and Jesus was abandoning this practice. That was quite controversial. But then Jesus was not just talking to any old woman. No, this is a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. Why does this matter, you ask? The Samaritans are the remnants of the northern kingdom of Israel. This kingdom was defeated in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. Jerusalem was not in that area, but in the southern kingdom of Judah. After their defeat, some members of the northern kingdom scattered and some remained or eventually returned. And over time, they developed some of their own worshiping customs. They had a temple at Mount Gerizim where they worshiped, and they had their own priesthood. It was assumed that these Samaritans had intermarried with other nations, so they were no longer pure Israelites. They also only considered the first five books of Scripture, the Torah, to be Scripture. The Samaritans were like the muggles in Harry Potter. Muggles are not true witches and wizards. They are the products of intermarriage and are only half-witch or half-wizard and half-human. Samaritans were considered half-bloods, for they had watered down what Judaism in its purity was. They didn't follow it rightly, and they were outcasts from the people of Israel. Jesus was crossing two borders, in this one story. The border of gender that had been established deep within Jewish and all surrounding cultures, 
and the border of race, ethnicity, and religion that Jews had practiced and believed that separated them from Samaritans for over 500 years. Jesus did not cross these borders willy-nilly. The story begins that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus made a choice to go through Samaria. Most Jews in this time would take the very roundabout way to avoid Samaria at all costs. So Jesus intentionally crosses these borders. And when the disciples return to him, after they've gone to get some food, they are shocked that he was talking to a woman. My wife is a pastor. United Methodists have been ordaining women for over 50 years, and still people find out that she is the pastor and not the secretary or children's minister and look at her like she has three heads. Not that long ago, a person, not from her congregation, asked her, did God really call you to do this, or is it just something you wanted to do? I ask, would that person have ever asked this question to a male pastor? We still have gender borders in our world. United Methodist female pastors make less than their, than their male counterparts, just like in the rest of the world. We saw this play out in a huge way in the news this week, if you looked at anything other than coronavirus news. The U.S. soccer organization filed an opposition to four of the women's national team players who are seeking equal pay to men's players. This is the same women's national team who just won the World Cup while their male counterparts failed to qualify for the last World Cup. In this filing, the lawyer for the U.S. soccer organization claims the job of the men's national team carries more responsibility within U.S. soccer than the job of the women's national team player from an Equal Pay Act standpoint. And then he insists, the lawyer does, that men's players face much more demanding working conditions like losing, sorry, that's my ad, and thus have fundamentally different and by implication harder jobs. Stolzenbach maintains that science confirms there are different levels of speed and strength required for men's and women's players. He insists it is not a sexist stereotype to recognize this distinction. Wow. The court filing happened this week. It sounds like it's from times when women were trying to win the vote. There are still gender borders in our world. They prioritize men above women, giving guys excuses like locker room talk and boys will be boys. That's inexcusable trash. I teach my girls that they can do anything that a boy can, that they can be strong leaders. And I would teach boys that they can be respectful and kind while still being strong and adventurous. We have other borders today, too, that keep others out. Where is the border in your life? Black and white, conservative and progressive, rich and poor, urban and suburban, affirming and traditional. We have all sorts of ways to place boundaries around what we think is right or natural or appropriate. And we can't just look at Jews and Samaritans and their inner battles and think we've gotten better. We do this all of the time within the body of Christ. We divide it up, even if it is within our own heads. In her book, Disunity in Christ, Christina Cleveland describes how she has divided her world into right Christians and wrong Christians. Have a listen. She writes, I chose to build community with people with whom I could pretty much agree on everything. 
I invested lots of time and energy in fostering relationships with people who had similar ethnic backgrounds, were about my age, possessed similar educational degrees, professed similar theology, worshipped like me, voted like me, and were fluent in the language of my postmodern intellectual, wonderlustful, diverse culture. I sincerely thought I was doing a fabulous job because, hey, I was living in community, and isn't that what good Christians are supposed to do? Over time, when I met other Christians, I found myself asking them what church they attended. Some answers were more acceptable than others. The way I saw it, there were two types of Christians, the wrong kind of Christian and the right kind of Christian. It was that simple. Wrong Christian was not a thinker. He hadn't read a book in the previous two years and had the limited vocabulary to prove it. Although, come to think of it, he did read a book a few years back about a woman's rightful place in the home. He voted based on one or two issues, abortion and homosexuality, two issues that Jesus didn't even mention once, mind you. Wrong Christian lacked cross-cultural sensitivity and somehow managed to avoid spending quality time with anyone who did not share his race and culture. Naturally, he only dated women within his race, although he occasionally crushed on more exotic types. When he was not rocking the suburbs in his gas-guzzling SUV, he surfed or played ultimate or some other inane sport. He proudly served in the United States military and inexplicably to me was more concerned with the preservation of the Second Amendment than the first. He was a card-carrying and proselytizing Calvinist. In fact, the last time I was over at his house, I noticed the acronym TULIP was paint, boldly painted above his door. He voted Republican, 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 and he was a he. Seriously, did you expect wrong Christian to be a woman? Pshaw. Curiously, wrong Christian, right Christian, was a lot more like me. While driving her Prius en route to the farmer's market, she self-righteously zipped past wrong Christian's lumbering SUV, blithely unaware of the fact that Prius owners and farmer's market shoppers, who are basically the same people, are consumers just like everyone else. She was a woman of the world. She was well-traveled and able to thrive in any cultural setting, except for those conservative Christian ones in the flyover states, naturally. She boasted of the ethnic diversity of her friend group and joked that she and her friends looked like they had just walked off the pages of a United Colors of Benetton clothing ad. Despite her high IQ, or perhaps due to it, she overlooked the fact that as well-educated, upwardly mobile, frequent Benetton shoppers, she and her friends were perhaps not as diverse as she thought. She hopped onto the poverty, social justice, and environmental bandwagons, as well as any other bandwagons that were in vogue at the time. She wasn't bound by political party affiliation. Rather, she thought for herself and voted independently. In other words, she voted Democrat, Democrat, Democrat. Right Christian was a reader and a writer. In fact, she'd written more books than wrong Christian had read. She was an equal opportunity dater. Translation, she'd date anybody but wrong Christian and his buddies. She was strong. She knew that she was wonderful, charming, and quite frankly, a more valuable member of the body of Christ than wrong Christian. All of these characteristics and many, many more made her right Christian. So it all began with two labels, right Christian and wrong Christian. The funny thing is the more I talk with people about these labels, the more I realize that many of us carry our own descriptions of right Christian and wrong Christian. Perhaps in your opinion, my right Christian is your wrong Christian, and my wrong Christian is your right Christian. Or maybe your wrong Christian and right Christian are totally different birds. End quote. Something within that passage that I just read was true of each of us. I know for me, I have been on both sides of who she views as a right Christian or a wrong Christian, and have judged people on both sides of that in my head. 
This is why it is challenging that Jesus crosses over the borders of Samaria and talks to this woman. Because when he does it, he throws into question every stereotype that people held. He erupts the status quo of division and instead provides a different way of seeing things. So he comes to Jacob's well and meets the Samaritan woman. And she asks if he is greater than our father Jacob. Our father Jacob. They share a common heritage and lineage, Jesus and this woman. Because Jesus had crossed the border and enters into conversation with her, some common ground can be found. This differs from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus the Pharisee from John 3 that we read last week because Nicodemus could never get it. His only questions were about, how can this be, when Jesus discussed the new birth? But when Jesus begins talking about living water, the Samaritan woman asks questions that further the conversation. She might take Jesus literally, for she asks Jesus to give her living water, so she will never be thirsty and won't have to draw water anymore. But she is open to receiving the water. And after Jesus tells her facts about herself and her lack of success in the marriage department, she calls Jesus a prophet. Not yet getting his exact identity, Jesus then is able to share more about the coming kingdom with her. And she is open and willing to receiving the good news. For when we cross borders, others experience hope and salvation. The woman is able to then say that she is anticipating the Messiah coming, the one who will teach all things to them. And Jesus responds, I am. The very name that God told Moses that his name was at the burning bush, I am. He is able to reveal himself to this Samaritan woman when he wasn't able to, to Jewish Pharisee Nicodemus. She is able to receive salvation and hope, this Samaritan woman is. In Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech, King paints a picture like a prophet where he sees the world as Jesus sees it. For all of the division that King experienced, particularly the harsh segregation of the Jim Crow South, King imagined a world where the borders were crossed and no longer were borders at all. Dr. Pink King proclaims, when we allow freedom to reign, when we let it ring from every city and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, great God Almighty, we are free at last. Friends, while freedom from slavery was gained in the Civil War, Dr. King knew that the white experience of freedom and the black experience of freedom were two different things. Boundaries existed between water fountains, within buses, at lunch counters, within schools, and deeply between churches. The Civil Rights Movement, with its border-crossing sit-ins, freedom rides, and peaceful marches, provided hope for many within this nation. They also upset the established powers who did not want to see equality for all. It would be wonderful if we were where Dr. King dreamed we would be. But alas, the world is not that way. Jesus is definitively confronting xenophobia in his border crossing. Xenophobia is a term that simply means fear of the other. 
Xenophobia is the cause of some of the world's great atrocities, from the death camps of Nazi Germany to the Japanese internment camps of World War II to the rhetoric used by political figures today about people of Latinx descent. Our immigration crisis, the crisis at the border, is made much worse by xenophobia. By classifying all people from Mexico and Central Americans as rapists or drug lords, people become less than people in our minds. They become aliens, strangers, others. That's how Jesus thought, that's how Jews thought about Samaritans. And thus Jesus is beckoning us to cross borders today to look after and serve others in our midst. And he calls us to quit all practices and speech that make others out to be anything less than people made in God's image. For when we cross the borders, the others who we may have previously feared become those who share the kingdom of God. Friends, when we cross the borders, the others who we previously feared become those who share the kingdom of God. For the woman at the well leaves the conversation when the disciples come and tells her community, come and see a man who told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? She apparently shared with a lot of people because many Samaritans believed in Jesus because of her witness. And Jesus, who was forced to leave Jerusalem because of angst he was facing from the leaders there, stayed in Jerusalem, sorry, stayed in Samaria two more days. The location that was forgotten and worthless becomes a training ground for the way of Jesus. And many Samaritans now see Jesus not just as Savior of the Jews, but the text says, as the Savior of the world. When Jesus crossed borders, it was not as if he was easily understood. D. Moody Smith, the commentator of John, writes, Interestingly enough, the Samaritan here calls Jesus a Jew, while the Jews will later call him a Samaritan. Jesus is, in a sense, a stranger to both, yet the Jews will reject him, while the Samaritans, the outsiders, receive him. End quote. The ministry towards the outsider that Jesus embodies and the ministry that the Holy Spirit opens up to all of us shows that outsiders can become those who share in the kingdom. It is not because we somehow are insiders to God's promises. All of us, as non-Jews, have been welcomed in as outsiders to God's way. So when we cross borders to share God's love, we are sharing as one beggar to another. So I ask you, where are the borders in your life? Where is God calling you to cross over a border and pull up a chair to be in relationship with someone who is different from you? Christina Cleveland challenges us to broaden our horizons and cross over borders when she writes, These days, Christians can easily go their entire lives without spending time with those who are different from them. Unfortunately, the more we spend time with people who are essentially identical to us, the more we become convinced that our way of relating to both Jesus and the world is the correct way. Over time, our convictions grow stronger and our attitudes toward different ideas and cultural expressions of worship become more negative. Social psychologists call this phenomenon group polarization. In the absence of diverse influences, homogenous group members tend to adopt more extreme and narrow-minded thinking as time passes, 
end quote. Friends, how much are we missing because we are mainly are with people who are like us? How narrow do our scopes become because our social media feeds are populated by people who think like us? How have we either right, whether right or left, become bigoted and judgmental towards someone who thinks differently than us? One of our measures of a Christ follower here at Macedonia is that a person is accepting. The question that we ask to measure how we are doing at being accepting is this, how am I building diverse relationships? Friends, we have a calling to build diverse relationships today. For even in our world that seems diverse, many of us are in relationship with people who look or think or act like us. Sometimes we don't cross over borders to make friends because we are afraid. And I ask, are we so concerned with security that we have forgotten to take risks for God? Here's the reality. Jesus never promised security when he called us to follow him. A sense of insecurity often keeps us from those who we need to be in relationship with most. Crossing borders always requires a special measure of courage and faith. It requires that we see the world and others as Jesus sees them. Not as others to be feared, but as children of God to be loved. And when we cross the border, God only knows what will come of it. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.